the number of times Nancy was nearly boiled alive. Oh, once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was an interesting book. That's one of the revisions where they changed the story completely when they revised it. Welcome to Page Count, presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. This podcast celebrates authors, illustrators, librarians, booksellers, literary advocates, and readers in and from the state of Ohio. I'm your host, Laura Meline Walter, the Ohio Center for the Book Fellow and author of the novel Body of Stars. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Fisher, a preeminent Nancy Drew expert author, collector, and historian who's here to discuss all things Nancy Drew. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we have a lot to cover, so we need to get right to it. But I usually start this podcast by asking my guest about their Ohio connection. But in this case, I would love to talk about Nancy Drew's Ohio connection. And to do that, we need to start with a question that might seem simple on surface, but I know it's a little more complicated, which is who wrote all of those Nancy Drew books and how is there an Ohio connection? Well, there were several ghostwriters for the classic Nancy Drew series, but the original ghostwriter who began the series was Mildred Wart Benson. She was from Iowa, but in her 20s, she moved to Ohio with her husband. They first lived in Cleveland, so she wrote some of the early Nancy Drew books there. And then they ended up in Toledo. He worked for the Associated Press. And so he kind of got transferred to Toledo. So she wrote uh, quite a few books there in Toledo and and her other books and series and went on to have a career there and lived in Toledo, Ohio for many decades. That's so fascinating that she wrote early books right here in Cleveland, where I'm based and where the Ohio Center for the Book is based. So a little bit later, we'll be discussing one of the early books, The Hidden Staircase. So it sounds as though that may have been written in Cleveland. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I did not know that. That's that's great. (laughs) Well, you are a collector of all things Nancy Drew. You are an expert. Can you tell us a bit about your personal origin story with Nancy Drew? How did this interest, how and when did it first start? And what draws you to the Nancy Drew books? So I started reading them as a kid, like most everybody. I think I was exposed through my school library and I had a friend that read the books. And so that's where I sort of got my start. I was probably around seven or eight years old. And I think what inspired me so much about Nancy Drew was Nancy Drew is such a bold, independent kind of character. And I was kind of an independent kid. I was an only child. So I kind of resonated with that with her, I think. And, you know, she had all these great adventures and she had the freedom to have all these great adventures. And most kids could never dream of doing anything like that as a child, but it gave you something to aspire to and inspired you. And I think that's kind of what hooked me. Plus, I loved mysteries and sort of getting, um, you know, to the bottom of a mystery was always fun for me. I was a very curious child. So that's kind of how I got my start. And, you know, like most readers of Nancy Drew, you know, I would get the books at the library. My mom would take me to the bookstore. And, you know, I just loved reading all the new books as they came out. And then I was kind of at that age where not only did I have the classic series, but in the very early, uh, very like late 1979, in the 1980s on, um, we had a new publisher for Nancy Drew. They went from the hardcover style to these paperbacks with Simon & Schuster. And so the the new paperbacks were coming out in the series um, that continued on. But then there were also spinoff series that Simon & Schuster released in the mid-80s, like the Nancy Drew Files. So I had all these sort of Nancy Drew influences coming my way. 
at the time, you know, sort of vintage yet modern. And so I was reading those books. And then basically what started my journey into what I do now is I was off at college and I kind of left my childhood books at home. You know, I was in growing up adulting phase, I suppose, you know, but I didn't get rid of my books. I went off to college. I went to law school and I went to an antique mall and discovered the 1930s Nancy Drews, which I never knew about. Because what I had were the, you know, books in the 70s and 80s um, on into the early 90s. So I had no clue that Nancy Drew went back that far. And so it was like a mystery in and of itself, figuring out what is this book? Because it's not like the one I read as a kid. You know, it was the original version of, I think it was The Hidden Staircase. And it was the original version. And I had read the revised version growing up. So they're kind of a little different in places. So that just kind of got me going, wanting to get my childhood books back from my parents, bring them to where I was at and collect what I didn't have. Because I did read a lot through the library. So I didn't have a complete set of all the hardcovers. So that's just kind of what got me going into collecting. And then it just led to all of these other things. Well, I definitely want to talk about the revised versions a bit later, because that was really fascinating for me comparing two yeah. books. So we'll we'll get into that. But I think there's so much. I mean, even with Mildred Wirt Benson. So she was, as you said, the original ghostwriter of Nancy Drew. So she really instilled in the character of Nancy Drew a lot of her personality traits, a really kind of plucky heroine. She's really bold. And especially for the time, that seems that it was maybe not the typical kind of female character that would be in books at the time. Can you talk a bit about that and what Mildred Wirt Benson, who never really had ownership over the Nancy Drew character or books, she was hired. It was like an intellectual property kind of situation, right? Where she was hired and paid a flat fee. But can you talk about her influence and how she was the one to really shape Nancy Drew? Yeah. So she had been working for Edward Stratemeyer for a little while, writing another one of his series. He had hired her on to write the Ruth Buildings. So when he kind of came up with the concept for Nancy Drew, you know, he had other ghostwriters that wrote for him, but he had Mildred in mind for Nancy Drew because he liked the way that she wrote in particular, like for young girls and for the way she wrote. She had a lot of short stories that she had written where there was college age girls or teenagers. And he liked the way she wrote in that particular style. So he had her in mind for Nancy Drew. He wrote up an outline like he did with all his ghostwriters, which he would send out to the ghostwriter. It was about two and a half typewritten pages with just the kind of the scenario of the book and the chapter outline and stuff like that. So she kind of got to take that concept and just breathe life into this character. And at the time, you know, girls, there were a lot of girls series books, but they didn't have a character quite like Nancy Drew. They tended to be in school or have mothers sometimes, not always, but some things would kind of tie them down to other things or domestic pursuits or other you know, things that were, they couldn't quite have the freedom like Nancy Drew had. And Millie grew up as an only child herself. Well, she had an older brother, but she basically grew up having a lot of freedom. She was kind of a tomboy and she would ride around with her dad when he would go on country doctor visits. He was a doctor and they lived kind of in a rural area near Iowa City called Ladora. And so she grew up kind of having her own adventures, making her own way and not really getting opposed on it, you know, got to do what she wanted and loved to write. And so I think a lot of her essence of her character and herself kind of went into the character of Nancy Drew. Because in some ways, you would say that Nancy Drew is kind of like a real life, you know, Mildred or Benson. Was she Nancy Drew or was Nancy Drew Millie? People talk about. But, you know, she kind of had that independence and boldness and zest for getting to the bottom of things. And Millie was very much the same way throughout her life. So she sort of got that chance to kind of 
breathe that life into Nancy Drew, kind of make her a different kind of character, more up to date. Um, you know, that all American teenage sleuth who didn't have a mom to tie her down and she did have a housekeeper and eventually the housekeeper kind of came to worry award over Nancy's adventures. But in the beginning, you know, her dad treated her like an equal, kind of like Millie's father was with her. And so, you know, Nancy had all this freedom to just do things that women didn't typically do back then. And that was kind of like a breakout character for kids at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't read one of the Nancy Drew books since I was a kid, but returning to it now, which was really fun, by the way, I really enjoyed it. It struck me the combination of the book is so wholesome and kind of safe, even though there are some scary, tense things that happen mm-hmm. to Nancy. It's yeah, it still feels very, very safe to read. And yet she is an independent girl or young woman out there solving mysteries and putting herself in dangerous situations. So it it does feel very progressive in that way, especially considering when the books were written. So I thought Mm -hmm. that was really fascinating. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Toledo Lucas County Public Library, where your collection now resides. And I would love for you to Tell our listeners a bit about your Nancy Drew collection. What have you collected over the years? Give us a sense of the breadth of this collection. Okay. So what I started with were just a hodgepodge set of my childhood books, which included the yellow spine picture covers that so many people are familiar with, some of the paperbacks and spinoff series. And so when I discovered a vintage one in the antique mall, that kind of got me to want to collect all the vintage ones. So basically, in a nutshell, I kind of found this message board online of Nancy Drew fans and collectors. And I missed out on a lot of this collecting circle that got really popular in the 80s, where they were trading books and buying through these little fanzines, like Yellowback Library and other similar ones. But eBay had started up in the 90s. And so a lot of them were getting onto eBay. And one of the collectors told me about eBay. So that kind of opened up a lot to me. Because locally, I could only find certain things, you know, in my used bookstores or my antique malls. So I was able to see all these different books and formats going back to the 1930s and 40s and 50s and onward, not to mention all the collectibles out there, collectibles based on the movies, the books, uh, the television shows. And I had no idea so many of those existed. So it was just like a... I kind of became what you would call an anything Nancy Drew collector. You know, if anything that was related to Nancy Drew, I was going to collect it. But then I kind of changed tack, like a lot of collectors don't, in that I was so interested in history behind the series and the people that created her and the process of, you know, creating uh, the marketing, the advertising, the distribution, all of those aspects that lead to the finished product. So I began collecting historical things. Sometimes they would be fan letters. People would write to the Stratemeyer Syndicate or the replies from the syndicate to fans. I started collecting advertising, like, you know, magazine catalogs or magazine advertisements, fan club memorabilia when they would send out mailers to people to join one of the different Nancy Drew fan clubs. I would collect the mailers and all the little advertisement pieces. So you had, you know, behind the scenes historical documents to you know, the advertising and all the ways that got that to the consumer and then the actual finished product. Maybe it's a book club edition or or some particular object that you could collect. So I could kind of tell the story, basically. You know, I see it as a lot of puzzle pieces that go into the whole history that is Nancy Drew. So I became very interested in collecting all the pieces to tell the story. So my collection involves thousands of books in different formats. 
some it's one book, but it's different formats over the years showing how the book was changed as they printed it and published it and advertised it to modern versions of that book, you know, reprints of the book. So like I could have, you know, 20 or 30 copies of Old Clock, for instance, the first book in the series, but in just different formats, foreign editions of that book. So I was collecting everything. So there's a huge gamut of that type of stuff with all the different books. And then there's the collectibles. So I have like games and lunchboxes, lobby cards from the 30s movies, posters from the 30s movies, stills from the 30s movies. For the 70s show, there was a lunchbox, there was a puzzle, there was little puzzle books, you know, there's all kinds of fun things like that. Collectibles related to the books. There was a mystery game in the 50s. Um, There was a doll in the 60s from Madame Alexander. So there's just so many different things. So there's hundreds of collectibles and paper ephemera, you know, advertising, fan letters, historical documents. Anytime she's been discussed in a book, you know, there's a lot of academic books that discuss her. I have those gifty style books that talk about the books and, you know, nostalgic books, uh, magazine articles over the years that have covered Nancy Drew. So it's this huge range of stuff. <laughs> a lot of it tells a story. I'm still adding to it today because there's, you know, I donated it to Toledo several years ago, donated earlier than I might normally have done that because of the timing that just came up with the situation working out well for that. So I'm still collecting for that collection in Toledo because there's still a few things that I haven't, you know, some scarce or rare items that I'm still looking for. I know you had told me that the collection that's on display in the library really represents just a piece of it. And there's a lot more, but it was, I recommend to anyone in the Toledo area or passing through, go to the Toledo Lucas County Public Library. The children's section in that library is really gorgeous. And your collection is in this cozy feeling room with armchairs and the wood paneling on the wall is original. There's a fireplace with this custom fireplace grate on it. There's artwork related to Nancy Drew on the walls. Some of the things, the items besides the books that I enjoyed browsing were the mystery game that you mentioned. There's small things like a spy pen, a lipstick pen, a clue ball, like a magic eight ball, but Nancy Drew branded. There's a Nancy Drew cookbook. I think it was a Norwegian board game of Nancy Drew. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it's just really fun to look through and you really get the sense of, oh, there have been so many spinoffs and translations. And this character has just kind of taken over in every corner of the world in every way that you can imagine through the decades. So it was a great experience to go there and see it and to know that Mildred Wirt Benson, her early work is being celebrated this way in Toledo. So I think that's fantastic. Thank you. Let's pause here so I can give you a little pop quiz on your own website. So I pulled this information from your website. It's okay if you don't have the numbers memorized, but I thought it would be fun as we're thinking about Nancy Drew and all her adventures. So let's just see how you do. (laughs) Can you tell me the number of times, I'm not sure if this is throughout the original run of the series, but the number of times Nancy had been kidnapped. Oh gosh, I know I created that list. Um, I'm going to say... You could just take a uh, guess. Like 10? Can't remember. 16. 16. Okay. You are in the right range. (laughs) Yeah. The number of times she was either poisoned or attempted was an attempted poisoning on Nancy Drew. I was going to say two or three. It was three. It was three. Very good. Okay, there we go. (laughs) The number of times she was locked in a castle tower. Well, I can think of two offhand. I think that that come to mind two particular books that had castles. 
I had one, unless I got it wrong, just okay. one, but she was also locked in an elevator at some point too. So maybe that's... Oh yeah, Blackwood <laughs> Hall. Yeah, in Blackwood Hall, she was in a creepy elevator. Just a few more, the number of times Nancy had been knocked unconscious. That's got to be a lot because that happened all the darn time. I'm going to say like 24. I don't remember my <laughs> You're close. It was there, but... 19. <laughs> and looking at this, it makes me worried for her health. She just keeps getting knocked unconscious, but oh, she's tough. I know. She's tough. Yeah, she is. <laughs> and then finally, I just love this one. The number of times Nancy was nearly boiled alive. Oh, once. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting book. That's one of the revisions where they changed the story completely when they revised it. Which book was that from? Moss Mansion. The Mystery of the Moss Covered Mansion. Yes. If anyone wants to read about Nancy Drew almost getting boiled alive, not to spoil it. <laughs> I know, it sounds like she scary. makes it. Yeah. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Horrifying. Well, she's definitely had a lot of adventures. So let's get into this original text versus the revised text. So I learned from from your website, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, it has so much Nancy Drew information for anyone who just wants to get started on a Nancy Drew education. So in Mildred Wirt Benson's era in the 30s, the original books were, how many original books were there at the time? The first 34 books. 34, 34. And Mildred wrote how many of those? So she wrote 23 of the first 30. So yeah, 23 of those. So she wrote the bulk of them. Yeah. So they were published in 30s, beginning in 1930. And then later in the 50s through the 70s, they were revised. And your website pointed out very helpfully that you could tell it's the original text if it has 25 chapters. Later, they were shortened to 20 chapters. Can you tell us why all of them were revised and shortened? What was the thinking behind that? So there's a lot of different theories about that. But the business records that are now at the New York Public Library in the Manuscripts and Archives Division, where they have the Stratemeyer Syndicate files, kind of revealed what was going on back then. And what happened was the publisher decided, well, there was a couple of factors. One, it's cheaper to produce a 20-chapter book text than 25 chapters. So it was a cost factor. And then also, it was a printing plate issue. The old printing plates and the process of printing were changing, but the old plates were kind of wearing out. And it was easier while they were transitioning to the new style to just shorten and make the changes. And so it became a printing plate issue and then, of course, an economic issue. And then as a consequence of that, they were able to update the books. And, you know, like in the original of Broken Locket, it dealt with these children. But adoption issues had changed and, you know, child issues had changed since that book was written. So they just kind of made it up a different story in the revised version. For some issues, they made inconsequential changes. Like they would change a character's name and to the reader, why does it matter? Why didn't you change it to this name? But there were little, little things like that that don't seem to be much of consequence, but they also were able to remove like ethnic and racial stereotypes, change outdated language. Like, you know, in the early books, they would talk about electric lights. Like that was a great <laughs> novelty. Well, by the fifties through the seventies, that wasn't any big deal anymore. You know, most people had that. So slang and outdated language got updated, stuff like that. Some of the books became all new stories. So the original version is a completely different story than the revised. That was only a few. Most of them was the same story, just cut down. Also, children's attention spans were changing. So that was another factor kind of to throw in there. So they could make a more rapid pace by shortening the length of them. 
So it kind of made them less descriptive and flowy and more fast paced and action oriented in some places. So basically, they went to the syndicate and kind of told them, this is what we're going to do. We're going to revise these books. So it became this big project and took them nearly 20 years to do the first 34. And at first, they started kind of right at the beginning of the series and changed. And then it just became haphazard after that kind of depended on the printing plates and the quality that the originals were in. And as they were wearing out, they would get that book and, and revise that book. Well, for this podcast, you and I decided that we would read or I would read The Hidden Staircase, which is the second book that Mildred Wirt Benson wrote for the series. I checked in here at Cleveland Public Library in our special collections department. We had a few Nancy Drew books with the copyright of 1930, including The Hidden Staircase. So I went to Special Collections, shout out to Special Collections, <laughs> and I read The Hidden Staircase with the copyright of 1930. It had the 25 chapters. It was the original text. It was, I believe, the actual edition that we have here was published later than 1930. The first thing that tipped me off was the dust jacket was advertising later Nancy Drew books, which wouldn't be possible <laughs> if it was an original edition. And I learned that from your website as well, that if you have a Nancy Drew book on your shelf that says 1930, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the original, that they didn't change the copyright unless the text changed. Is that correct? Yes. So I read the original version first, had a great time. And I did think, well, the revised version has five fewer chapters. It's probably you know, not very different. I could see where they would trim some things and maybe move some chapters together and trim. And it's probably not that different. So I almost didn't read it until thankfully, I compared at first just the chapter names of both books. And I was shocked they were completely different. I read the revised version and it is so different. It has the basic skeleton of the plot and most of the characters, but even the characters are a bit changed. So I was really, really surprised that the book was so changed. So tell me what your thoughts are on this. Do diehard Nancy Drew fans, do you prefer one to the other? Or how do you feel about the revised editions? Our fan group has such a mix of people of all different ages and, and types of people. But I think a lot of people, when they read both versions, if they have the ability to do that, they have both of them. They realize the writing quality is way better in the original version. It's just hands down better quality. The way it, there's the length of the space to get it descriptive and flowy and really get into the suspense and the characters brings out a better mystery, I think. The original version has more of that old time kind of gothic suspense and melodrama that you don't quite get out of the revised version because it's choppier. And, you know, there's places where they copy whole sentences and whole paragraphs in part. Some are shortened, you know, so a lot of the original gets into the revised in pieces. In the revised, they add Willie Wart, who's not in the original. They change up that aspect of the plot a little bit. So there definitely are differences. They've changed names, you know, Nathan Gombit and Gomber. I mean, they changed his last name. So, you know, there's all those little changes. I prefer to read the original version, but I still love the revised because that's what I grew up reading. So it's just nostalgic to me. Um, I like them both. I think the original flows better overall. Can you, for our listeners, give a quick synopsis of The Hidden Staircase? And it could be either version or kind of an amalgam of both. Maybe it'll be an amalgam. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you have the Turnbull sisters who are living in this mansion as property on the outskirts of River Heights. And Suddenly, their place seems to be haunted, as often happened in, in these stories back then. And sort of Nancy gets brought in to kind of figure out who's haunting the house. You know, she's a skeptic. She doesn't really believe in ghosts throughout the series, with minor exceptions. 
So she's there trying to figure out what's going on. And at the same time, there's this man, Gombit Gomer, who's kind of threatening the Drew House about what's going on with the railroad and property development. And that's kind of the background. So then you start to see as the reader that there's something going on that's tied into the house and the land. There's also a house nearby that is connected with this home, goes back to a family and people that lived. And there's like a passageway that connects them where you kind of find the hidden staircase that she stumbles upon throughout the mystery. In the revised version, we have Willie Wharton, this character that's sort of like a henchman for Gomber. Her father, Carson Rue, gets kidnapped at one point in the mystery. And Nancy not only has to find out what's going on with this house and who's haunting it, also what's happened to her father. And that kind of becomes the crux for kind of solving, you know, this mystery. And what's so neat about this mystery is the house. It's one of those mysteries that's always been one of my favorites because of the spooky old house, the haunting, the secret passageways, the hidden staircase, all those trappings of a good gothic suspenseful mystery, which I always love. I get drawn to the spookier mysteries or the ones that have like those detective trappings, like the secret passageways and, you know, her kind of sleuthing around with her flashlight and the cover art was always fun for me as a kid. I always enjoyed seeing her on the staircase with her flashlight. Yeah. The original version, especially, I love the descriptions of the house. It's this giant crumbling kind of gothic feeling house and definitely has a haunted feel, even if you're like Nancy and don't believe in ghosts. (laughs) It was really fun. And when I thought about the two different versions, I realized the original was actually a lot scarier in the sense that from the beginning, Nathan Gomber Gombit, he is much more threatening and terrifying, really. He basically breaks into her house and threatens to steal things, kind of alludes to the fact that he'll hurt her. That is all gone in the revised version. And importantly, in the revised version, Nancy is staying in the house and exploring it along with her friend Helen, where in the original, Nancy is just on her own. I mean, she ends up exploring these passageways on her own, which sounded Mm -hmm. really terrifying to me. So I thought that was interesting that the revised version almost makes it a little safer for her. It didn't feel as scary. It does. When they revised the books, they almost made her world a little safer than it was in these originals. They kind of tightened all that down to where it was a little more safe and sane, you know? Yeah. The cover art of the version of the original that I read was a different cover. So it wasn't Nancy with the flashlight on the staircase. It's Nancy looking into a passageway with the two older women, the sisters. Oh, yes. And I really laughed at one point in the original, one of the signifiers, I think, of a change of times, which is the women are sisters in the original, and they're described as they seem like very older women, you know, pretty old. And the cover art shows them with like short, gray, curly hair. They look to me, at least in their 70s, at least. And it was so funny at one point in the original, it's pointed out that these sisters are nearly 30 years older than Nancy, who's like 16. So they're only in their 40s, (laughs) which just makes me laugh. I know there's a lot of things that go on with cover art not matching, but it was really funny to me because to me, they were described as being so elderly and they're only in their 40s. But in the revised version, they are older. Rosemary is the great aunt of Nancy's friend and the other character's name changes slightly and is actually Rosemary's mother. So she actually is elderly. So I thought that was maybe they kind of matched up my expectations by making them older. So I think so. It is funny when you read the original and they (laughs) sound so spinsterly, but they're not old. And I, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, in our modern day right now, 
lifespans have changed. Oh, People yeah. living a lot longer. But even back then, it's hard to believe that someone in their 40s would look like that. You know, it's just, yeah, it's the juxtaposition of that is weird. I think definitely in their 40s, if they had never married, they would be you know, kind of culturally considered older spinsters, right? Um, yes. So I felt very grateful to be in our time now where <laughs> you can pretend you're a kid as you're aging the whole time, as, as some of us <laughs> might be doing. Mm-hmm. A few other fun, I think, signifiers of the time were in the original version, you know, telegrams are really the way that you can communicate quickly with someone. And at one point, Nancy goes to the town and she goes to this corner drugstore, the corner drugstore, and then she like goes down a few doors to the telegram office or the telegraph office. It was so striking to think that that is how the times would be, that you would have these corner drugstores. So I found that really charming, actually. And her father travels by train in the original. And I think in the Mm -hmm. revised, he goes to an airport. So that was just kind of fun to think about. It's like a time capsule, I guess. It is. It is. I think that's the fun of reading those original versions is just getting a sense of what life was like back yeah. then, you know, to a degree. I mean, they didn't try to date their books, but yeah. but the trains, the telegraph offices, all of those little things, it's fun to see kind of how people lived at that time. It made me laugh for Nancy in the original. She goes to stay at this house with these two sisters in the original because she's, you know, trying to solve the mystery. And their evenings are described. It's so charming, but kind of awkward that they have no evening paper. They have no radio. So in the evenings, they just kind of sit around in the parlor, like staring at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Entertaining themselves. Yeah, it's a very different time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and then I think it was the revised version where they kind of dress up in the costumes. Yeah, and kind of put on this little show, you know, to entertain everybody. That was sort of funny. It was funny. And that was a moment when I was reading the revised version when I just thought, okay, I am not in Kansas anymore. This book is a totally (laughs) different book. Nancy's crawling out on the roof in the revised version. Totally Mm -hmm. different. Is there a record of who wrote the revised versions? There is. I'm trying to think. I think I have that on my website in the format section. I think I have some of that in there. But, you know, the syndicate, some of them did like Harriet did some of that. Some of it, the staff kind of all worked on them and they hired different people to help with the cut downs because that was a lot. They were doing it at the same time they were writing the regular books that were being published at the time. So yeah, it came this huge sort of project for her and the, and the staff trying to deal with this. I think in some ways she didn't really welcome having to do all this, all this extra work. But at the same time, you know, Grosset was trying to kind of bring Nancy into the modern era to save a little money and deal with the printing plate issues. But Mildred Wirt Benson wasn't involved in rewriting this book. I didn't think so. I didn't get the sense that she was. Yeah. No. In fact, when she testified in the trial that comes later in Nancy's history in 1980, she said, you know, when they revised them, they took the spice out of them. That's how she felt. Yeah. And they really did. They just, they're not the same. Well, we'll get to that trial in a second, because I definitely want to ask about okay. that. But I will say, I agree, the revised version is just not the same. I will say, though, there was a character in the original version, you know, a book of its time that was very uncomfortable. And it was Nathan's maid, who is a mm-hmm. Black woman. And she yes. is really described in every unflattering term you can, that she's vicious, that she's mean, that she's cruel, she's slovenly. 
at one point, Nancy, I think it's the first time Nancy sees her through a window and she only sees the woman's back while the woman's washing dishes. And Nancy is thinking like, that's the most vicious creature I've ever seen. And I'm thinking, Nancy, how do you know that, Nancy? (laughs) Like, how do you know? And she's just an employee of this villain, right? So I was really curious when I started reading the revised because I knew that sometimes maybe racial stereotypes were removed from the revisions. And I was hoping mm-hmm. that character would either not be there. I just kind of wrote her out. Yeah, she yeah. was written out. And I think I saw that coming when I realized, oh, this is actually a very different book yeah. in general. Yeah, she was kind of caught up with Nathan Gomer, kind of, I wouldn't call her his henchman, yeah. but she was kind of helping him do what he was doing to a degree and keeping people from coming in the house. And I don't want to spoil that part of the book, but something that was in the house, you know, yeah. Helping him do what he was doing in that house. But at the same time, those kind of depictions are so uncomfortable for people today because we're thinking with our current mentality. But back then, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the series books and books for adults kind of had those sorts of stereotypes in them. I know that Mildred wasn't the most comfortable with some of that stuff in the dialect. She wasn't comfortable with that. Her husband helped her write the dialect. Oh, really? Parts of those early books. Yeah. You know, Stratemeyer was only around for the first three books that came out. And then he helped outline and worked on the fourth book. And then he passed away um, when he had pneumonia. So his particular books tend to have the worst instances of those kind of stereotypes. And some of that was in the outline. We've seen the first three outlines. We've not seen the fourth, but the first three are sort of circulating out there a little bit. And the dialect is in the outline. So she kind of had to struggle with that a bit. So yeah, it wasn't always her choice. It's hard to say totally, but I know she talked about that at one point. And her husband kind of had to help her with the dialect part because that wasn't really her thing. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Another moment in a similar scene that it was hard not to read through today's modern 2023 lens. The police in the first book, they come, won't try to spoil too much, but basically they come to help Nancy. And at first, one reveals that he's a friend of Nathan, who was the villain, right? And he seems unwilling to help Nancy. The moment she reveals that her father is a lawyer, the police officer just says, oh, well, you're the daughter of a lawyer. That changes everything. We'll help you now. And then (laughs) it's like, okay, that sounds about right. And then there was a scene that it made me so uncomfortable, but the police see the the maid, the black woman. And there's a discussion of if they should raise their guns toward her. And one of the police officers says, no, we can't risk shooting her, you know, at all. And the other cop is like, yes, that's great. Yeah, we can't risk that. And I thought, oh, okay. I was sort of like the tension that was holding in my body oh, kind of I deflated. Know. I know. Because this is a children's book, right? I mean, that's right. Yeah, right. I know. But yeah, reading about the police was was interesting. And they take on, I would say, a different role in the revised version. As we said, yes. everything seems a bit safer in the revised version. And the police are generally much friendlier and more helpful in the revise. Well, and Nancy's more kind of on board with police and respectful to them in the revised or the later Mm. books that are published. In the 30s, Nancy sometimes is more distrustful of the police or thinks they're bumbling and they can't. They are, And sometimes they are, as depicted in the stories. She's out there besting the police and doing what they can't seem to do. But yeah, so she can be kind of brash and blunt and maybe less respectful with them than she is in later stories and revised versions. Well, I think one last thing I want to say about the difference between the revision and the original is in the original, the two women in the house are sisters, and one is named Floretta, which I think is such a beautiful name. And then it's changed to Miss Flora in the revised. So I don't know why they had to, why did they do that? Why did they have to do that? 
I, I know there's so many little name changes. I don't know if Floretta would just, they thought it was too old fashioned maybe, maybe. or, I mean, there's even like, if you just talk about the old clock, the first book, they changed the name of a bank. I mean, one was like Merchants Trust and I can't remember the other name. They just changed the name of the bank. And you're like, why would anybody care about the bank's name? But whoever was revising just changed it. There's a lot of little things that don't always make sense when you compare the two versions. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe just the one cutting it down didn't like that name and decided to change it a little bit. Well, I will say it was very enjoyable to read both of these books. Um, And now that I know about the originals, I might try to seek out more of the originals and read them because it is such a different experience, I would say. But you mentioned the trial in 1980. Can you talk about that? What was that about? I don't know too much about this. And how was Mildred Wirt Benson involved? So the trial is kind of this melodrama, sort of turns up. Basically, you know, Nancy Drew had been published by Grosset and Dunlap since the beginning. And so we're talking 1930 to 1979 and the first 56 books. And they had always, you know, worked with the syndicate. They'd had a contract with them. Over time, Harriet at the syndicate wasn't as happy with royalty payments and other little factors like, for instance, Grosset and Dunlap wasn't planning to do anything big for Nancy's big 50th anniversary in 1980. But Simon and Schuster kind of had been courting the syndicate and trying to sort of published the books and offered to have this big grand party for the 50th anniversary. And there were little, you know, carrot sticks dangling there and kind of enticing Harriet to switch publishers. So it was a factor of things like that, royalties that hadn't risen over time like they should have as, you know, time changed, money became different than it was in 1930. And there were things that just hadn't changed that should have. She tried to sort of stick with Grosso because she was pretty loyal. Um, that was the company her father started with. So at any rate, Simon and Schuster, they switched publishers. And I don't know that they really informed Grosso effectively or they didn't really think it was going to happen. But in 1979, book number 57 was published not by Grosso, but by Simon and Schuster. And so Grosso finds out and they're like, wait a minute, you know, we're the publisher here. So they decide to sue Simon & Schuster, um, their parent company, Gulf & Western, and the Stratemeyer Syndicate. So they file suit, uh, trying to establish copyright on the books, basically. Kind of, because, you know, as a publisher, they had provided the artwork for the books, and they were kind of trying to get in the door on that angle and some other legal angles um, and prove that they kind of were the copyright owner. And so they could continue publishing all these new books instead of Simon & Schuster. So it went to federal district court. And Millie, at the time, had been talking with Grosset and Dunlap about her Penny Parker series. You know, she wrote some books for the Syndicate, the Nancy Drew series, some other books, but she also had her own books and series. And she had had a series called Penny Parker, which was really her favorite, even over Nancy Drew. She called Penny a better Nancy Drew than Nancy Drew was. (laughs) Penny was like this sleuth whose father had owned a newspaper and she was kind of a journalist. It ran from the late 1930s into the 40s, a short series of books. But anyhow, through different changes of publishers that originally published those books, it ended up being absorbed by Grosset and Dunlap. They had acquired the properties because it started out as a totally different publisher and then ended up being purchased through different routes into Grosset and Dunlap. So they're looking at Penny Parker as a possible replacement for Nancy Drew if they lose this lawsuit because they need something to compete and they want to revise the Penny Parker series. So they've been talking to Millie about revising the first four books, kind of bringing them up to date with modern times. 
And so Millie's working on that with them. And then she goes, well, you know, I wrote the original Nancy Drew books. And then, oh, light bulbs go off at Grosset. Wait a minute. We can use her in the lawsuit to help establish our copyright and ownership of the series. So anyhow, they bring Millie to New York to testify for them. And she gets on the witness stand. And the whole story of what she did all those years kind of comes out. It doesn't get widely publicized, though. There was a lot of fans behind the scenes over the years that worked to get her recognition for being the original Carolyn Keene. And she did, in effect, through this trial because it was on the record, but again, not widely publicized anywhere around the country. So that's kind of what happened with the trial. She came in to testify and the man who kind of discovered her, Jeffrey Lapin, in the 60s was there and Harriet Adams sort of came right in front of Millie and was like, oh, I thought you were dead. You know, it was this <laughs> big drama. But anyhow, on the stand, they basically proved that she had written all those books and showed the releases she signed and, you know, proving that she wrote them. But it didn't really make any difference. At the end of the trial, the outcome of this, just to make it in a nutshell, was that Grosset didn't get copyright over the books. It didn't work out for them. But they got the right to continue publishing all the books they had already published so they could keep reprinting the first 56. Simon and Schuster got to do anything newer and whatever they wanted to do in the future. So that's sort of how it worked out. You know so much about Mildred Work Benson and you're working on a biography about her. Is that right? Yes. Is there anything you would like to share with us about just the process of working on this biography? What has your process been? Where are you in the process? What have you found the most challenging and the most rewarding so far? Oh, goodness. This could be quite a story. (laughs) (laughs) So I started being interested in writing about her when I first met her. I was able to meet her the year before she passed away in 2001. A few members of our Nancy Drew Sleuths fan group went to Toledo and got to meet her at the Blade. She kind of had us in the conference room. We talked to her. She signed people's books. It was about 12 of us. So I got to meet her in person, which, you know, who would think she's still alive and 95 and working still for a living at the Blade writing, you know, her column. That's amazing in and of itself. And I think that was so inspiring, seeing this woman on the go who's still sharp as a tack and who's still, you know, loving what she's doing and getting to write still, which was always her great love. So that was inspiring, you know, and I just kind of percolated in my mind that there was more to her and she kind of indicated, you know, her legacy will always be Nancy Drew, but that was a small part of her life in the grand scheme of things. In some ways, she had a lot more things she did in her life and she kind of became even more of a real life Nancy Drew after she quit writing the books with all these adventures she had. And so, so much of that was so fascinating to me that I thought it would be great to be able to tell the complete story, not just her involvement with Nancy Drew, but her whole life kind of as a real life Nancy Drew. Here and there, I would start to research. There's so much research in different areas of the country, but I couldn't just afford to go start writing this, you know. So as we would have a convention here or travel here, I would get to New York for some reason, like being on the Today Show or something. Then I would go to the New York Public Library and I would do as much research as I could because there's 300 and some odd boxes there of stuff, very info-dense material. And so I would just, over time, start gathering research. You know, I knew I wanted to write it, but I wasn't in a rush. She died the next year. And then her daughter wasn't exactly interested in talking to people a lot. She was very different. I think she was proud of her mom, but she wasn't that into all of this stuff in the history. And she just was more private. 
So trying to get at the personal side of Millie was kind of hard because Millie was very businesslike and, you know, she didn't like to talk about her personal life a lot. And so trying to access that aspect of it has been interesting. There have been people in the collecting world who have things that they hoard, let's say vintage documents, vintage letters, and things that would be a great consequence for this to be able to be brought out and researched and talked about, but they hoard it or they don't tell people they have it and they don't admit that they have it. There's research out there that I need that I can't really get to, which is frustrating. There have been, at one point, there was a rumor that Millie wrote an autobiography about herself. She never did complete it, as it turns out. But there was an eccentric person who drew me a map of where I might could find it in her house. <laughs> like a mystery. <laughs> in an upstairs hidden closet at the back in a paper bag, you know. And her daughter could never find it. The family didn't find it after oh um, she passed and the daughter passed. So it was all likely a rumor. Anyhow, there was all these letters that came to me in the recent few years from her and her daughter that have really opened up the personal side to Millie and kind of given me a great aspect of what a wonderful woman she was, but what a tenacious woman she was and what an independent woman she was even more so. And just finding more about her adventures, you know, in her later years, you know, starting in the 60s, she was taking all these trips down to Central America to check out Mayan sites that were just being opened up by archaeologists that weren't really touristy at the time. And she was going down rivers with Indians in dugout canoes and scrambling through the brush, you know, making her way to these sites and hung her hammock in a Mayan temple one night and just spent the night in this temple. I mean, these are the kinds of adventures you think of, oh, Nancy Drew, you know, solving a mystery. But no, she got herself kidnapped down there really? and managed to kind of think, what would Nancy Drew do? <laughs> I wrote this character, got herself out of the situation and escaped. And I'm just still piecing together what happened then. And that incident, there was a, I think, you know, she kind of ran scared from that over the years for a while, but she allowed this myth of it to be that, oh, she was mistaken for an Indian princess. And kid. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Which no. never, never made any <laughs> sense to me, but you know, that she just kind of let this legend take over and then kind of cover up what really happened. But Apparently there might've been some corruption going on down there and she stumbled into it, Nancy Drew style. She was a, a journalist too. So I think people knowing she was a journalist, sort of concerned about her and maybe were keeping her somewhere to figure out what she was there for. And what she was really there for was just for the like experience, the archaeology aspect of it and just learning more about the Mayans. It had nothing to do with being a journalist or, you know. But at any rate, there's a lot to that. But it was really fascinating to kind of come up with her notebook that she talks about what happened. But this kind of spurred her going back on many more trips to kind of figure out what happened to her and what was going on. And nobody knew about that, you know. So that was sort of this Nancy Drew side. And then she decided to become a pilot. She didn't ever fly herself down to these sites. She usually took a charter plane of some sort. But all over the United States. She flew her plane. She would go to fly-ins. She tangled with tornadoes. She would get herself into scrapes up in the air. One time she crashed her plane when it landed just slightly, but then dragged it off the runway before anybody could know. She didn't want the FAA involved. She just, <laughs> you know, she was just an amazing woman in what she did. She flew into her, I guess her 80s. She was still flying till her eyesight became bad um, and it kind of grounded her. But yeah, so she had all these adventures. And so that's what's been so fascinating to me. There's all these characters in the Nancy Drew world, some that knew her, some that act like they know her. 
they have little stories and little legends, you know, to tell. And some of it doesn't pan out when you actually look at the facts and the research and her personal letters and things like that. But there's people that hoard information that you need as a writer to help kind of open things up because what the New York Public Library has, there are things missing there. There are gaps in some of the early letters and somebody has that. It's likely that it just didn't all make it to Simon & Schuster when they sold the business after the trial to Simon & Schuster. They sold the syndicate in the mid 80s. So Somebody has some of that stuff. And I think Millie had some copies of some of that stuff. And now somebody has that. It's just, it's frustrating not to be able to get at that because it would sort of help explain some of the stuff going on when she was writing those first few books. That is so fascinating. I would read (laughs) this so quickly. So in the future, (laughs) when it's out, I am absolutely going to be one of your first readers. That sounds amazing. Thank you. I would also watch a documentary about Nancy Drew fans, 100%. That doesn't exist, does it? I would watch that. (laughs) No, no. There have been people wanting to do documentaries and kind of working on the process. I don't know how that'll all work out, but I'm hoping that eventually somebody does get one made. I think that would be so neat just to hear a perspective from all the fans, all the different generations and learn more about Nancy Drew and bring out her history for fans to learn about. Because, you know, there's so many people that were involved in the production of these books, from Edward Stratemeyer to his assistant at the syndicate, Harriet Otis Smith, to his daughters, Edna, especially early on, and Harriet that took over when he died. They were in the middle of the Great Depression and had this company and didn't know what to do with it at first. They tried to sell it, but couldn't find a buyer because it was the Depression. They just kind of dug in and decided, you know, we're going to run our father's company. And two women in a male-dominated publishing industry at the time was kind of unheard of. And they managed to keep the syndicate running from 1930 to 1984 when Harriet had already passed away. But the partners that were remaining in the family sold it to Simon & Schuster. But for many decades, she kept her father's legacy going. And then the illustrators, the publishers, all the people involved in kind of bringing Nancy Drew to life. I kind of call them the Drew team, so dream team, but so many interesting aspects to her history. Absolutely. Well, we should start to wrap up, but I have a few quick final questions. First, we have a lot of writers who listen to this podcast. So I'm wondering, you're a writer yourself, you're working on this biography. Do you have any advice that you have either gleaned from your work on this biography or from all the Nancy Drew books that you have read? Anything you'd like to pass along to writers, any tips or things they can do in their craft? Well, I think first and foremost, and something that I struggled to do at first because I was just overwhelmed by so much of the research is definitely a good working outline, but also a timeline. That's the biggest help for me was starting to create a timeline of everything. She did so many different things and there was so many overlapping periods with different things, creating a really solid timeline over the time period that she lived and all the things she did really helped put some things in perspective. So if that applies to what someone's doing, that really, really helps just to be able to refer to. Also making it interesting. I mean, what I'm trying to do in writing this is sort of make it suspenseful like a Nancy Drew mystery because most of the people that are going to read this biography are probably going to be Nancy Drew fans. You know, then you'll just have in general other fans that come on board for different reasons, but making it suspenseful, having cliffhangers, drawing the reader into the story. I kind of start out at the beginning of this book um, where she's been kidnapped and what would Nancy Drew do? And then it yeah. rushes back to the beginning of her life and then builds forward again. It's kind of my direction. And that just seemed the logical way to do it. And when I found, and that's another funny story, when I found notes that she had put together, kind of an outline of sorts to do an autobiography, though she never actually wrote it, 
she started out her autobiography the same way with her action being in the middle of that scene. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't believe that. Cause that's what I thought was perfect just to start out with that and go back and then come forward. So she had done the same thing in her outline. So that told me I was kind of on the right track, I think, but yeah, I think that it's a good way to also bring in sort of, you know, it's not a historical fiction, it's a biography, but to bring in sort of some of the Nancy Drew into the book a little bit. So those are some fun ways to make it more interesting for the reader, I think, and draw them in. That is very good advice. Instead of just starting with the day she was born and moving forward, yes. yeah, making it more yes. active, definitely. Well, if someone is new to Nancy Drew, either they have never read Nancy Drew or maybe not since they were a child, do you have a recommendation of where they might want to start? Is there a certain book you would recommend or even a TV or film adaptation that you particularly like? What would you recommend? So what I would recommend, I mean, the modern books are all fine. They're not as suspenseful or mysterious as these older books, the vintage books. So I kind of recommend starting with the vintage books and just seeing how it goes. You don't have to read them in order, although I still like to read things in order, but you can mess around with the Nancy Drew series because they don't necessarily continue. So I would pick some of the Nancy Drew books based on the child's interest. So if they like kind of spooky things or spooky mysteries like The Hidden Staircase or The Secret in the Old Attic is another really spooky one, start with a spooky one because that kind of hooks them. If they're really into certain types of themes like horses, you know, Shadow Ranch, and, and she's on a ranch and riding horses. If, you know, they like circuses, there's the, the Ringmaster's Secret that's sort of set partly at a circus. If they like to travel and go to other countries, some of the Nancy Drew books were travel logs where she went to other countries and you get a little bit of sprinklings of tidbits of history and culture where she's traveling, little factoids throughout the mystery, kind of giving the kids some information on the, the country she's in. So, you know, you could start with something like that. There's all kinds of fun things. Or one last thing, if you like to travel and want to kind of follow in Nancy's footsteps, like we do at our conventions, you can pick a book where it's set in a real life place. Like, so the Haunted Showboat is set in the New Orleans area. So if you wanted to travel to New Orleans, you could follow in Nancy's footsteps and do stuff she did in the book. Because they do add in touristy things and little stuff that Nancy Drew does. So those are kind of fun. You can make them interactive that way. How easy or difficult is it in general to get your hands on the original versions? Like if you go into a bookstore, it's going to be the revised versions, correct? So is it just searching online or are they easily labeled? Do you have any tips for how people can find the originals? Yeah. So for finding one of the originals of the first 34 books, if it's 25 chapters, you have the original. If it's 20, you have the revised. Going to your local bookstores is definitely going to be hit and miss. Probably mostly it'll be the revised versions or the little flashlight style picture covers that are modern reprints. My best bet is to go on a site like eBay because you can find everything there. You just need to check with a seller and make sure it is the original version. Some of us, because we've collected these books and we know the formats, we can tell by the book if that's going to be the original or the revised version based on a cover art or one of the formats the book is in. Not everybody knows how to do that though. So my best bet is to make sure that the copyright dates are between 1930 and 1956. If the seller lists or shows that for the first 34 and then the 25 chapters versus 20, we can always contact the seller to verify how many chapters it has just to make sure if you want to get the originals. And then Applewood Books reprinted the first 21 books and you can find reprints you find an Applewood Books reprint, it's going to be the original version. And you can find quite a few of those on eBay too. Great. That's so helpful. Thank you. Well, finally, can you tell our listeners where to find you online and some of your Nancy Drew information online? 
Okay, so you can find me at nancydrewsleuth.com and our fan group at nancydrewfans.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Our most popular group there is Nancy Drew Book Fans. So you can just search that and find our group. We like to talk about the books there um, and all sorts of Nancy Drew stuff, collecting. And then we have a book club on there. If you want to join in and discuss the books, it's Nancy Drew Book Club. If you search that at Facebook, we have even a book sale group called Nancy Drew Book Sale, where fans can sell to each other all these vintage books or modern books. Anything goes Nancy Drew related. So if you have books to sell or want to find books, you can also check that out. Wonderful. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. This was really fun. I could probably talk to you about Nancy Drew for two more hours, but um, our time is up. (laughs) But thank you so much. This was fun. And I will send you good writerly vibes for that biography. But thank you so much for being here today. And thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Page Count is presented by the Ohio Center for the Book at Cleveland Public Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review for Page Count wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more online or find a transcript of this episode at ohiocenterforthebook.org. Follow us on Twitter at CPLOCFB or find us on Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch, email ohiocenterforthebook at cpl.org and put podcasts in the subject line. Finally, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Laura Maylene. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks for another chapter of Page Count.